Now this stool is nice. And I'll get so comfortable I might go to sleep with you. <laughs> I, it's here because Charles and I were discussing, I don't know, a couple of days ago, since I quit full-time preaching, which I'd done for 58 years, I wasn't through preaching. And so I preached by appointments and gospel meetings and so on, as Brother uh, Benelli had said a while ago. And one of the places that I speak regularly is Fairview in Pulaski, Tennessee. <clears throat> I did an interim work with them from their last preacher to the present preacher. And when they finally hired him, then they said, we'd like for you to still come once a month and preach here. So I go down. And then when I broke my hip, I was very sick, of course, in 17, but I broke my hip in February of last year. And because I'd been so sick in 17 and then breaking my hip, I had to take a break from preaching completely. So I went six months without preaching. And when I returned to Fairview, they supplied a stool for me. And I said, well, I'll use it for a couple of weeks. And the elders said, no, just keep on using it. We don't care whether you're standing or sitting. It's what's coming out of your mouth that matters. And so I, I made a sort of tongue-in-cheek comment about it. I said, well, it's very biblical because the Bible says Jesus sat down and taught them. And so I'm not Jesus, of course, by any means, but, but I, I do follow that, that pattern and don't, don't apologize for it. <clears throat> there are others in this audience much older than me, uh, at least a little bit older than me. I, I, I refuse to admit how old I am, I guess. But you know, the older we get, there are things that we have to accept. And accepting the fact that we're not as strong as we once were is, is a difficult thing, a challenging thing. But I'm gonna tell you, you all are so kind. You're so gracious. You're whole, so hospitable. And you just are a great encouragement to Phyllis and me. And we thank you for the privilege of being with you in this series of gospel meetings. Tomorrow night, God willing, in the final session, the question, what was God doing before he created the world? And the answer to that question is not only straight from the Bible, but you'll find it, I hope, very encouraging, enlightening and encouraging as we've tried to make each of these lessons. And if God be willing that we be here, I will look forward to your presence and to your delightful faces. We have a wonderful audience tonight. There could be better quantity, but there could not be better quality. So I am grateful for that privilege. I love word studies. I just thoroughly enjoy doing what I will feel prompted to do when I'm listening to somebody else preach or sitting in a Bible class or reading and studying on my own. 
and I'll notice a word, and I'll think, you know that word's in the Bible at other places. So I use that program on my computer and pull up that program, Bible Gateway is the one I use, and I use it because it's free, <laughs> but it's a wonderful program. And so I'll just type that word in. And then when I tell it to search, every place that that word's found in the Old or New Testament will come upon my screen. And so it's very helpful to me. And I usually find myself discovering the word being even broader than I first thought in its occurrence and its application. So it is with our study tonight. Do you know what a conjunction is? Now, I'm not going to take you back to English grammar, but do you know what a conjunction is? Well, a conjunction defined accurately is it is a word that joins words or clauses or sentences. And sometimes it will occur to show you in just two words, linking them together. They're called coordinating conjunctions at that point. And to give you an example of what I'm talking about, the man that you're listening to could sit up here and tell you, I love sports. All my life, if you could bounce it, throw it, hit it, catch it, whatever, I wanted to play it. And you may look at me and say, well, that old thing, he couldn't have done anything, but I used to could. And as my wife says, as I get to talking about it, Phyllis will say, yeah, and the older he gets, the better he was, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I can talk about all of my sports love. And even to this day, <clears throat> I sit down and watch on TV sports that I don't really know much about. I never did play them and enjoy it. I just enjoy the competition. But my favorite things are watching collegiate football and basketball. I just used a conjunction, didn't I? Football and basketball. Coordinating conjunction. The two of them being equal. That word and is a conjunction that's one of the most frequently used in our English language. There is a corresponding conjunction that is also found in great use in our English language. And it's the conjunction but. And to illustrate it, you might hear somebody say, oh, he was very sick. And then if that person continues, how it changes the whole picture when you hear the persons say, he was very sick, but he is much better. You see the conjunction, but, drawing a contrast. That's why the, type of the title of this lesson, a contrasting conjunction. So I was reading, and I came across one of those times, and I'll give you examples of them, of course, as we continue. And then I, I got into that computer program. In the New Testament alone, there are 3,994 times that word but comes up. Why? Because the Lord in teaching, 
the apostles in teaching, <clears throat> and our Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit teaching, emphasize to us things of contrast. This con contrasted to this, sometimes comparison, not always a contrast, but this compared to this. That's what a lot of the parables are. Jesus saying this is comparable to this in the kingdom. But a lot of times there were th that which was the opposite or the contrast. I guess the one that pops in my mind first every time I think about this is what I've already brought to your attention in two of the previous three sessions together. And that is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See the contrast? There's either life, if he believes in me, he has everlasting life instead of eternal damnation, a contrast. So that's where we're headed in this study tonight. I want to give to you a couple of examples that are of a immediate need and an immediate application to all of us. Jesus Christ taught people how to go to heaven. And he taught very clearly, very distinctly, unmistakably about who would go to heaven. And in that great and well-known Sermon on the Mount, in the latter part of it, as recorded in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. See that contrast? In other words, there are religious people all over the world, and that's true today, people of a lot of different faiths, and there's so much out there that's just so confusing and bewildering, and you have people say, well, I think the Lord will save them all. No. Not everybody that's religious is going to be saved. So Jesus said distinctly, the man that's going to be saved is one that does the will of the Father. So that raises this question. How can I do the will of the Father without knowing what the will of the Father is? I can't. Now, I might accidentally stumble across, you know, and just accidentally do something that's His will. But if I'm going to do His will completely and fully and faithfully, I need to know what that will is. And that's what this book provides for us. It gives to us the will of the Father to us. And, of course, it presents to us this obvious conclusion Studying the Word is a priority. The more I know this book, the more I know the will of the Father. The more I know the will of the Father, the more faithfully I can do the will of the Father. Does that not make sense? 
And that's what Bible study is about, what Bible classes and Bible readings are all about. It's what sermons are about. That's why we, when Charles or I, whoever stands before you, we have the responsibility to tell you, here's what the Bible teaches. Joe, you mentioned um, the preaching that I had done on radio and on television for a number of years. And back about 20 years ago, started a program. Do you remember, you know what GBN is, I guess, Gospel Broadcast Network. And I was given an opportunity to, to produce or speak on one of the programs on GBN. And I was told, you pick the topic. You know what I picked? To title the program, the program title, what does the Bible teach? Doesn't matter what I think or what you think, or what mom and daddy thought. The important thing is what does the Bible teach? Think about it in the religious world of confusion. People say, well, I believe this. Another man says, no, I, I don't think you're right. I believe this. Remember, the important thing is not who is right. The important thing is what is right. And you can determine that by the will of God. So see, that's what Jesus was saying. He said, not everybody that's religious and says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Who will then, Lord? He that doeth the will of my Father, tidying it together with that contrasting conjunction. James, the brother of our Lord, wrote in an epistle to Christians in James chapter 1, Something that beautifully illustrates the significance of the conjunction, but. He wrote this, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. See where his emphasis is? Now, you, you have to know that's James 1, 21, 22. You have to receive. You have to hear the word, and you have to receive it with meekness. You receive it with an attitude of submission to the will of the Lord. So you hear the word in order to know the will of the Father. But then here comes James with this compelling Reminder given by the Holy Spirit of God, don't just be one that hears it, do it. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, is that not what Jesus taught? The man that hears my sayings and does them is a wise man. If he hears it and doesn't do it, he's a foolish man. So hearing is the beginning of the process of being acceptable to God because it's the beginning of learning the will of God. But then when you learn it, the question that pops up is, what are you going to do with what you've learned? May we have faithful teachers, faithful preachers, and may we be diligent students of the Bible but never forget what I do with what I learn.
That's crucial. That is crucial. I want you, in the next few minutes, to read with me four scriptures, four texts, that all have in common that conjunction, but. And I will read it, hopefully, in a way that will give great emphasis to that. And let me tell you ahead of time, this is one of the things I enjoy preaching oh so much, because it is so encouraging. So let us start in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. When the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle, he wrote to help the Jews and the Gentiles to understand conversion to Christ, becoming a Christian, receiving forgiveness of sins which everybody needs because everybody's a sinner. And as he proceeded in this book, he began to bring to their attention God's great scheme of redemption, that forgiveness and salvation comes by faith in Christ Jesus, not by the works of the law back under Moses, but by faith in Christ Jesus. And when you hear what that doctrine is, I said, are you listening? What that doctrine is, the doctrine of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the holy purpose of making salvation available to all men. What do you do with it? Read verses 17 and 18 with me. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now in that same context, later Paul just develops the idea of sin. So before you were a Christian, where was that leading you? Nowhere except eternal death and condemnation. And he wrote that in the sense of why would anybody in the world turn their life around and turn toward Christ and then turn back around and go back into sin? just doesn't make sense. But he says to these people, I'm thankful to God that although you were servants of sin, you're no longer because in verse 18 he said, you became servants of righteousness. When? How? When you obeyed that form of doctrine. Ah, remember? Look at me for just a second. Let me use my hand to illustrate. Jesus was living on earth. He was crucified. He was buried with the dead in a borrowed tomb. 
And as he prophesied, and the Old Testament prophets had said it also, on the third day he was raised from the dead and gave us the proof of his divinity, his deity. Death, burial, resurrection. Earlier in the sixth chapter of Romans, Paul draws from that fact this example or parallel, this comparison. So again, looking at my hands, he said, you were dead in sin. You were buried in the waters of baptism. And you were raised to walk in newness of life. That's what Paul was given thanks for. And he calls it the form or the, and one translation says correctly, the pattern. The pattern of doctrine, the pattern of teaching. So I'm thankful, he said, that you were, but you're no longer. Can you remember when you were, but no longer? Turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I know, I know a lot of you take notes and a lot of you mark in your Bibles. <clears throat> if this one's not marked in your Bible, it ought to be, because this is a wonderful, wonderful scripture of great encouragement. Now, when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he wrote to a church that was comprised of a lot of people with a lot of problems. I mean, that church just was full of problems. So Paul addressed them in his writing to them and to teach them regarding their condition. Verse 9, know ye not? See, this is a rhetorical question. He wasn't asking for information. He knew. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And, there's a conjunction, such were some of you, but you are washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God because of the picture he just painted. He said, now you know what the scriptures teach. Those who commit fornication, those, and by the way, the Acts, the uh, being a practice, practicing homosexual is included in the latter part of verse 9. And maybe as a man is covetous, maybe a man is a, a thief, maybe he's a murderer, but we know that such people do not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he said, and that's what some of you were. Listen, 
I'm suspecting that a lot of you, like me, can easily remember moments in your life when you did things that you're so ashamed of. You regret it so much. And you'd love to have an opportunity to have a do-over. But it's just not going to happen. We've all been sinners. Maybe not all of us murdered. Maybe not all of us commit adultery. Maybe not all of us are covetous. But in some way or another, all of us are sinners. But Paul said, that's what some of you at Corinth were, but, did you catch the three buts in it? But, you're washed. But, you're sanctified. But, you're justified. Washed, that's a reference to the baptism. You will, re will recall when Ananias went to Saul of Tarsus, in the city of Damascus when Saul was a persecutor of the church and he had had a moment that he would never forget when he saw Jesus. He heard a voice. He responded, what do I do? You go on into Damascus and it'll be told what you do. What was that? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Water is a cleansing agent. You're going to wash your soul by the symbolism of being buried in the water. So the whole man will be washed clean. You are washed. You are sanctified. The word sanctified there it could be holy. You're holy or sanctified suggesting from the world, you're set apart now. You're no longer of the world. You're set apart from the world. You're different. Uh, you do know that, don't you? You're different. So don't ever be ashamed of it. And if there's no difference, then pray tell, how do we expect to get people to listen to us? But he said, you're sanctified and you're justified. Now, if you were here Sunday, you will remember this. I said, justified? Think of the courtroom session when the judge says, not guilty. An acquittal, totally forgiven. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. And here's what I find intriguing. Once he said, you were. But three times he said, you are, you are, you are. He referred to that past with the past tense verb. You were, but now you are, you are, you are this. Now in total context, Paul was saying, that being your condition, don't go back out there and live in that idolatry. Don't go back out there and do those things that are ungodly. You've had your time in that. And be thankful you're forgiven. It's all in your past. 
And it prompts me to say again, as I've said already in this meeting, as a forgiven sinner, you're free from the guilt of all your sins and you're free from the fear of tomorrow. You don't have to dread tomorrow. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen any more than I do. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. And it may be the day the Lord comes. It may be, this may be the night the Lord comes. It's going to be night somewhere. It's going to be day somewhere. So at some point he's going to come. Do you dread it? You shouldn't. You need to look forward to it. As the writer to the Revela writer of the Revelation said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Take us all to heaven. Where we transcend everything that we've had in life. The best moment you've ever had in your life will seem as nothing compared to what you'll have there. Why? How? Because you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. So rejoice. And as I often say, if you have that joy in your heart, notify your face. Let people around you see it. Let them see it in, even in your life. And be thankful that that can happen. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, the second chapter. And I'm going to read a few more verses here than we've been reading because I want you to get deep into the context and let this, all of this just envelop you of what Paul was writing. And by the way, before we read, Remind yourself that this is one of those letters that Paul wrote to help the Gentile Christians realize, I know what you were, but I also know what you are now. And it's all by the grace of God. So that's what he's about to say. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein... In time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Wait a minute. Stop right there for a moment. Do you see what he's saying? Word conversation in that, incidentally, from the King James Version, would be accurately understood as our manner of life, our behavior, our total conduct. So here's what he's saying. All of us had a life when we didn't behave like we should. We didn't do the things that were right. 
and we engaged in the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, doing those things that were so ungodly. Verse 4, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved. And that not of yourselves, or saved through faith rather, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in other words, by the Jews, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time when you were Gentiles in the flesh, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, but... Now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What a marvelous declaration. And, and you can draw a comparison. You're not dealing with a Jew-Gentile struggle like they were. We're all Gentiles. I assume there's no one of the Jewish faith in here, but we're all Gentiles. But that, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at letting us see that like those Gentiles, there was a time in our lives before we were Christians, when we were without hope, we were without God in this world. But when God in His rich, tender mercy sent His Son to die for us, to make atonement for our sins. He had no sins. We're the sinners. Now you tell me who deserves to be punished. But Jesus stepped in and said, I'll take your place. I'll bear your sins and let them crucify me. So now, now, you're in Christ. You're in Christ and you've been brought nigh to God by the blood of Christ. You ought to be able to sit there tonight and say, I am not a stranger to God. I'm not his enemy anymore. I was, but I'm not anymore. Because I'm not a, a person that practices that which is ungodly and sinful. I do my best to serve and do what's right. And when I lose focus on that, and suddenly it 
occurs to me that I've just done something so wrong, I'm immediately going to talk to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And he knows our hearts. And he says, I forgive you. The blood of Jesus just keeps cleansing you. Turn to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> when Paul wrote this to Titus, after writing Ephesians, and we've already read from him from Romans and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, and now here to Titus. Titus was a minister, a minister of the gospel. So Paul wrote instructions to him. Here's what you need to teach. Here's what you need to preach to people. So he helped him to understand it to start with. Verse 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice, and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you know who I see in that scripture? Paul. You remember what a persecutor of the church he was? And he included himself back there in verse 3, we ourselves. Paul knew what he'd been. And I, I'll ask you a question that you can't answer, except to say I don't know. But I think of it myself. How often in his work as a minister of the gospel do you think Paul thought about his past? And he said, but then when his sweet grace came, he said, justified by his grace, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what did Paul say as he wrote Tata, I mean, Timothy in his last letter? I have fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is a crown of righteousness awaiting me that the Lord Himself will give me on that day. And then He said, and not to me only, but to all them that fear the Lord. That includes us. That's that hope of eternal life. Paul knew. He was about to die, and he knew where he was going when he died. 
You know, one of the questions that elders in the church and gospel preachers and so on hear a lot from folks is how later in their lives, as they know they can't live much longer, one of the burning questions is, can I know for sure where I'm going? And yes, you can. And you can live with that confidence. I, a couple of years ago, I talked, maybe it's been three years now, but anyway, not too long ago, I called a good friend to Phyllis and me. And I knew she had cancer and she'd fought it so strongly and courageously, but she, she was battling it with a losing battle. And when I called her, I said, how are you? And she said, I'm hurting all over. And I'm so tired. She said, but I'm ready. I'm ready to give this up because I know where I'm going. And that's what Paul said. Well, wait a minute, Paul. You persecuted Christians. You put people that believe in Jesus in jail and help, help kill them? Yeah. His life had been tainted. It was a corrupt life, an ungodly life, and he did it all in good conscience. He thought he was doing the right thing. But then when he became a Christian, He never lost his passion. He said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Now, he didn't say, woe unto me if I preach not. He said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Don't you know, within any kind of reason, that God saw that in that man's heart before he confronted him on the road to Damascus. Somewhat similar to David, the king of Israel. I was assigned the topic of pure in heart, O oh God, help me to be at the keynote address at that lectureship in Memphis just a few days ago. <clears throat> and I knew when I was writing the manuscript, it had to come around to David. Because God said, he's a man after my own heart. What? He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was mercenary. He slaughtered people just to gain the favor of man. So God, how could you say, he's a man after my own heart? And then I read something that just pierced my brain. If you had an imaginary conversation with God, <clears throat> you might ask, Lord, what did you see in David? 
And the Lord might say, that's the answer right there. I saw in him. Man looks on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. And he saw a man who, although murderer, thief, liar, fornicator, etc., he saw a man who would never walk away from God but what he'd turn around and come back to God. So was he an awful man? Yeah. Was he forgiven? Absolutely. That's the message. I hope it's enlightened you, but I hope it's encouraged you. And that you just put all of those past sins. Stay faithful, but stay thankful. Thankful that the way you were is not the way you are. One more thing. The Son of God himself said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. It's a message that tells us we have a choice. No one can make it for us. We have to make it ourselves. And if you've never made that choice, today is the best time in your whole life to do it. And if you've made it, but you've drifted away, come back. The Lord can say, yeah, I know where you were, but I know where you can be now. I forgive you. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, come while we stand and sing.